I'm gonna get my can of wine. <laughs> Tight. Take your time. How's your Thursday? So far, so good. Uh, you know, I, I'm finished with uh, classes until the break, or in anticipation of the break, or I am now on break, I mm -hmm. guess. But I have a lot that I need to do, so I'm not on break. I don't know. It's cool. Talked about like Plato today. What does Plato have to say about COVID? Um, I mean, really what we need to do is grapple with the form of COVID and not the particulars associated with it. I don't know. Did you, did you see that Newsom just announced? It's going to make us stay inside between the hours of 10 p.m. and 5 a.m.? Yeah. Which God, is, how will I ever survive? I, like, how will I go to my, uh, my Zoom rave? <laughs> yeah, Zooming is now punishable by law. That would be a... a Can you Zoom between the hours of uh, 10 and 5 a.m.? Yeah, but you can't Zoom in on it. That is mm -hmm. forbidden. Find yourself in bed with pathogens. It happens to the best of us. Um, are you Zooming in on pathogens? Are you on the Tinder? Actually, yes. Uh, it's funny you should mention that. I am now... On day seven, no social media. Oh wow! What's only J swipe? No, no, nothing else. Yeah, only J date is all that's allowed. But I did uh, download Tinder again yesterday. Uh, Were you just like in like an anxious sweat? You're like, God, I have to waste time somehow. Oh my God, dude! Let me tell you, like a week no social media, I am intimate with Craigslist, Venmo, my email inbox. Like, <laughs> have you unsubscribed from like? you know, all of the things you accidentally gave your personal information to, like Blue Apron and, you know, <laughs> other, like, coupon businesses? You know, I'm, I'm just accumulating as many as possible, hoping that somebody would steal my identity, and then I could, I have this whole insurance scam in my head that I had, just haven't been able to actualize. I really uh, downloaded Tinder again in anticipation for our talk on uh, Rabbit Town, because I wanted to get some uh, direct experience with the LACMA lights. Yeah, well, so that's actually how I kind of came across it again. You know, I had read about Rabbit Town in, I think, as you aptly noted, the height of the George Floyd protests, which um, is really saying something that amidst, like, social revolution, or at least, you know, social insurrection, the Chris Burden estate took it upon themselves to um, sue a, uh, a POC-owned business. Yes, yes, absolutely. I was, yeah, I think the timing is it was really interesting. June 4th is when they did their press release, which was like the entire country was on fire that day. <laughs> I specifically yeah. remember it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I was, and, and it, you know, we're going to continue to just have to, like, keep those dates in our mind as we look back on the things that are being kind of, like, folded in quietly. I saw one article that was, uh, I forget his name, an Indonesian art critic who was like, well, this would be a great opportunity to highlight the works of Indonesian artists. And That's I true. Went, it, it, it is true, although I looked at uh, some of the works, you know, that were sort of under his website and... I'm not sure how Instagrammable they are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the issue. I mean, what is really interesting to me is, so Rabbit Town is a part of a sort of an entertainment consortium called Wasada Selfie that um, is comprised of Centrum Million Balls, which is the biggest ball pool ever, and... Totally pre-COVID reality. <laughs> are awesome. I actually think that COVID is like very low-key in Indonesia right now. Good for them. Yeah, I follow a um, uh, this nomadic family on the Instagram called uh, Our Open Road. I've, I followed them, I think, from like a previous iteration of myself when I was like wanting to be someone that you know, like, I, I wanted to say, like, doesn't wear a bra and, like, wears moccasins, but I'm, like, not wearing a bra and I'm wearing Uggs right now. So <laughs> I was going to ask you about the Uggs. <laughs> but that's, like, uh, that's just happenstance. But, yeah, I think a version of myself that, like, I don't, that uh, 
how do I even describe that one? Like that was going to study like geography and like wanted, you know, like a bearded boyfriend, but I moved past that, but I still follow this, this family. I think I gave up on them and then they were uh, kidnapped by pirates in the Amazon. And I was like, oop, looped back in. Um, I was going to say bummer, unfollow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. But they, uh, they just like live nomadically out of their van in South America for a while. And then they moved to Indonesia and I think just like lived at this like surf resort as influencers and now they live on a boat. But according to their Instagram presence, which is the extent of my understanding of what's happening in Indonesia, you know, from the perspective of these four white people from Los Angeles, um, COVID is over. I get all my news. They seem to never be wearing masks. So I imagine that means that, um, they're uh, not privileged at all. Well, there's like that horseshoe kind of like model, right? And so there's like, you know, whatever, like Trump, COVID is a hoax people. And then sort of like, it's all good. I have all these amethysts in my pocket type of like other end. And I tend to fall towards that. That's why I've been spending so much time in Humboldt. Yeah, totally. I mean, you're going from Humboldt, then you just like stop back home for a second and now you're going to the desert. So like, don't let your amethyst filled pockets slow you down, brother. Yeah, the first day that I got to that sublet I was in 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 Arcata, Humboldt County, I stepped on something while I was like, you know, moving things around in the bedroom. I was like, God fucking damn it, what is this? And I thought it would be a thumbtack and it was a small, sharp piece of amethyst, which I found very fitting. (laughs) That just like fell out of your butt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think all millennials fantasize of being you know, like van influencers of some sort. Yeah, like, it's it's true. It's like every like sixteen year old from LA that smokes cigarettes like wants to live in Portland at some point. Yeah, where hipsters go to retire. Um, yeah. So bringing it back to Rabbit Town, just for the benefit of our listenership, um, so they so everybody can know what it is that we're talking about. I'm just gonna read like a little paragraph off of Artsy just to give a brief overview of like Please what do. it is that we're discussing. All right, so quote. The estate of late artist Chris Burton is suing a theme park in Indonesia for copyright infringement. In a lawsuit filed on June 4th, Burton's estate accused the owner and operator of Rabbit Town, a tourist attraction in the city of Bandung, of copying one of Burton's most famous artworks, Urban Light from 2018, which features 202 restored street lamps permanently installed in a grid pattern in the plaza in front of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Anyone, any man who's ever swiped around on Tinder is familiar with these with these lights. One of the most photogenic of Rabbit Town's many Instagram-friendly attractions is a grid of street lamps dubbed, quote, Love Light. Burden's estate is calling for the installation to be removed, Rabbit Town to issue an apology, and for compensation for, quote, both material and immaterial losses to Burden's estate. So many things. Wow. Okay, well, I think to begin with, the thing that really fascinates me about um, was not a selfie, like, as this consortium of, of, like, Instagrammable experiences. You know, to finish off, the other thing they have is uh, this exhibition called Pink Ice Cream, which is a ripoff of the Museum of Ice Cream, which is already a bastardization of, like, a museum experience. So this sort of, like, Matryoshka doll, um, you know, experience of, of like bootlegging bootlegged experiences (laughs) seems to kind of be like a recurrent theme um, in this whole narrative. But I guess to begin, I'm really interested in the function of this institution of Wasada Selfie in Rabbit Town. And I, I feel like there's this, there's this sense that by photographing a knockoff you're like cheapening the original but a photograph is already something that you know removes itself like from 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 the aura perhaps you know and um how do i say it like if you look at any geotag for any like american arts institution what you're going to see overwhelmingly are images of people posing in front of artworks. But nonetheless, we maintain that these institutions are like ordained and like culturally relevant because we call them museums and they're like where we 
um, you know, archive the like pinnacle of our, you know, society's cultural production. But maybe by, I guess the other, the other relevant aspect of this is that like Wasada selfie is a part of a trend that's really popular in Eastern and Southeast Asia called Swafoto, which is literally selfie tourism. And I think it's really fascinating that like, they're just very transparent about like their intentions. Like they are, you know, data farming and they're like, I mean, they're like content farms and, um, you know, American arts institutions, like, don't have that same sense of, like, earnesty, even though that's how, like, the average American interfaces with an arts organization. And so I feel like it's not so much just the fact that, you know, it's a ripoff of this Chris Burden piece, which is made out of mass-produced objects. Like, they're not, they're not artist-made lamps. They're literally collected from around, like, urban spaces you know, over the course of decades. Um, there's nothing unique or original about them outside the fact that they were, you know, gesturally arranged by a revered conceptual artist. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> first of all, LACMA is sort of uh, entailing a contradiction in a certain way. They are, they're acknowledging that the, the currency of this spatial object, whatever it is, is its ability to be selfied while simultaneously maintaining that it's a unique experience that can only be experienced there. And it's like, yeah, as far as like the actual artwork itself, I mean, who cares kind of? It's obviously only successful due to its photogeneity which is fine. It's ubiquity it, is its cultural value. Totally. And I don't think that, you know, I, people who go there and take those photographs are not engaging with like whatever, Chris Burden or something like that. I mean, yeah. And, and just, you know, that it's, you know, a Gagosian thing or whatever, but it's like, you know, all this money, it's just, it's just a cash grab ultimately in a time where museums are, are a little scared, and I don't understand why either LACMA or Gagosian would be scared because they're making money hand over fist because rich people keep moving in this time. Yeah, you know. I mean, what's interesting also is that like as a content farm, you know, LACMA owns that work. And so it really affects <laughs> the only, the reason this came back into consciousness was I was like, you know, swiping through the bumble i haven't deleted social media i just guess needed something else to uh <laughs> or useless hours into i also have a long-term partner so i don't actually meet with anyone <laughs> i i guess i was just kind of curious as to like what it looked like what the interface was like in the exercise you know i'm a clipper fan i get it yeah yeah i mean i can only go through craigslist free for so many hours before i need <laughs> another fix you know um I can only like send emails for so many things that I don't intend on picking up. But um, was I saw someone take a selfie in front of, I saw someone's profile photo was the Chris Burden knockoff. And the only reason I know that is because I'm from Los Angeles and I've driven past that installation like hundreds of times. And I have studied this like, you know, ongoing quarrel between the Chris Burden estate and Wasada Selfie. And so I am like the minority able to distinguish like the real from the fake, I guess. And um, the only thing that that does is encourage more people to visit the, you know, facade of LACO when they're in Los Angeles. Like how many people in North America or I guess like how many people, I mean, unless you're like, nobody is going to, you know, choose one over the other. Like nobody's going to be like, oh, I need to like go to Indonesia so I can like go to this selfie station. Like it's not like an attraction in and to itself, you know, like the Chris Burden installation is like a regional icon. And I think that's, you know, something that makes it kind of like relevant to the aging yet like 
you know, persistent discourse around the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, because it is situated in a time and space, even though it's made of reproduced elements and there is nothing, it's, it's only gesturally unique, it's not materially unique. It's time and space exists geographically, but it also exists ethereally on the internet. And that's why I wonder what Benjamin would say about memes. Like I have, I went to art school. I have read that essay so many times. Yeah. And I think the reason I was never fully able to like derive any sense of value from it was because I always ended up on the same conundrum. I'm like, but what about memes? <laughs> like, I also, similarly, I wonder, like, why were you writing this during, like, Nazi-occupied Germany? You know, it's like, why is the Chris Burden estate suing this Indonesian theme park during, like, a moment of, like, social insurrection? It's like, aren't there just more relevant things to be dealing with right now? <laughs> God, to, to take selfies after Auschwitz is, is brutality. I mean... You know, Benjamin. Were there selfies before Auschwitz? What's that? Were there selfies before Auschwitz? <laughs> uh, yeah, but it took a little longer. <laughs> there was there was no urban light. Um, I, I mean, first of all, I personally think that Tinder Benny, after Auschwitz is brutality. I'm sorry, <laughs> Adorno. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna be that guy. But I think that first of all, I think that Benjamin would have had a podcast. Like, there's a there's a lot of ink spilled about you know the elitism of the frankfurt boys and you know with very very good reason but i think that benjamin sort of exists outside of that and the the example that i'll use is his um radio programs for children mm. his he was like really really uh he seemed very willing to use new forms of technological production but it was not necessarily as an art object it was for the for the benefit of children, for entertainment and for creativity and for like the development of language. It was pedagogical, it wasn't artistic. Um, and I don't know, but uh, in anticipation of our talk, I actually Googled uh, Benjamin and memes and I found, you know, a couple dozen like JSTOR, like undergrad things and like they're all really bad. This one's talking about like Kermit and uh, Amy Schumer being a copycat or whatever. <laughs> I Wait, mean, I have she, this, what? Who is she? Who is she copying? Oh, I don't know. I don't. I can't. I can't click every link, you know. But <laughs> I, climb every mountain, click every link. Yeah, I mean, I also. Yeah, I, I, I somewhat unrelated, but I think I have this theory that I'm developing about memes, which has probably already been developed by somebody else, but that memes operate in the same way as an art gallery in that as soon as you put it in this context, it becomes a completely like, it's fully realized in a completely new way. You like upend its meaning or something like that, like putting a urinal in an art gallery and putting a right-wing meme on a left-wing platform transforms its meaning into its own obvious. It creates this sort of like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's a matter of horseshoe politics. It's like, um, something that comes to mind is during you know, in June, post-George Floyd, there was a, a man who was wielding an AK-47 at a peaceful protest in Austin, Texas, and he was um, shot to death by someone else. Like, I don't think they were also in possession of a gun, but they were in a car and I think there was some like standoff between the protesters on foot and this guy in the car. And Texas has like open carry laws. So this guy had his assault rifle with him. And um, he was also with his quadruple amputee wife, who he was a caretaker for, who was also black. And I just remember the headlines for this like act of extreme brutality and this man being killed were so interchangeable because he was this like white like seemingly you know like outwardly facing redneck um but was like 
yeah, ex-military, yes. Um, but like had an assault rifle and had an interracial marriage and was out of Black Lives Matter protest. I was like, wow, there's literally something for everyone in this. Like anyone could sink their teeth into this and use it as fodder for like their own like political motivations. And so I think that, you know, this is the this is the sort of like memification of cultural production is that it's like sedimentary, you know? And sometimes like the previous layers aren't as apparent as, you know, like the, the sort of fundamental conceit of an instance or, um, or like an object. And so I agree that like, you know, with your logic around like the far left meme on like the right wing page. I mean, Brad yeah. Trammell talks about that. Who does, I'm sorry? Brad Trammell. Oh, of course, of course, yeah. Who who really uh, stepped up in this last election cycle? <laughs> I really appreciated that distribution very quickly. The young man's name was Garrett Foster. Thank you, Correct. thank you. Um, yeah, I remember that very, very, very well. And uh, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about sort of just the incredible malleability of any sort of media narrative and I watched an interview like the next day with I think it was the head of the police union in Austin who had this really douchey statement about something something to do with like oh well he was he knew what he was getting into or you know something like that it's kind of like the she shouldn't have worn so short of a dress argument mm -hmm. but like at a bikini expose or you know at a, at a um a beauty pageant you know because it's like well yeah that's it, depressing <laughs> um but, but yeah it exists outside of its context in this interesting way yeah i mean it's interesting because with i mean that kind of goes back to chris burden because that it's not only something, it's not only, it's not only like an object or a location or an experience whose like cultural relevancy is like, you know, perpetuated through imagery, but um, it's public artwork and it's viewable from Google Maps. So what is it to be, what is it for that kind of art object to be owned by an estate or a museum the museum could own the object and the estate could own the rights. So it could be a, like a dual partnership in that way. But what is it for something to be possessed in any capacity if you can view it from anywhere in the world at any moment? It's a very good question. And I mean, it, it, it just raises other questions. Like what is it, what is public art? What is its function? What is it for something to belong to a, a dead artist? Like should the Chris Burden estate <laughs> sue every time somebody gets shot by their buddy on accident? Like, I mean, where do you draw the line at a certain point? Wow, yeah, totally. It's a really good point. Like, or does like, Derek Foster, does his family now go to the Burden estate? And like, <laughs> what is the legality in this sort of uh, tricky situation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that it's really like contained by its objecthood, which is also, you know, like compromised by irony, because, again, they as like a like very quintessential 1970s West Coast conceptual artists, these are found objects. Chris Burden found these lampposts um, at a flea market in Los Angeles and then became good friends with a number of people who had spent the last several decades collecting these vintage lampposts and then accumulated them and then installed them in, um, you know, in the facade, uh, the, front of, the front facade of LACMA. It's also interesting because it really is like, a, you know, aesthetic commentary on the colonnade, you know, like the classical, like architectural element of antiquity which is something that we use to, you know, reinforce ideas of like political and ideological preeminence. Well, sure. If we're going to actually analyze urban light as an art piece, I mean, yeah, it has that sort of like Parthenon aesthetic, but it's also in a grid. It's not useful for anything. And it's defined <laughs> like the best by conceptual illumination. Art. It's defined by illumination, which is, you know, uh, analogous to enlightenment 
you know, just kind of shining a big fluorescent light on everything. I mean, that's like sort of the Mike Davis City of Courts, Los Angeles critique. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think City of Courts is such a brilliant title for that collection of texts because Courts is something that is translucent and it's something that is valued, but it's also quite cloudy and polluted. You know, it's like as far as gems go, it's not you know, something that's going to be diamond cut. It's always going to be like, you know, translucent, but not like fully diaphanous. And I feel like Los Angeles as a place is something that is like, you know, it's like main currency is artifice. And as feels accordingly. And I think courts as of like all of the minerals that could have been used in you know that title I feel like is like the most relevant yeah it's also so readily available you could buy a piece of quartz in any part of the world for you know a dollar or less Mm -hmm. which is the same as in Los Angeles I was actually I tried to find some rabbit town related uh, YouTube videos and I found this cute Indonesian man with like a laugh track going around. And um, I'll admit my Indonesian is a bit rusty, but there was, you know, some subtitles at the bottom and it was talking about some of the other attractions uh, included are the LA store and Hollywood land. So it seems as if rabbit town as an entity really does have like an LA aesthetic in particular. And I also think it's worth noting that if you look at the photos side by side um, of the two works, the LA one has palm trees. (laughs) Like you can tell the difference as you, as you pointed out. I mean, the other one has like these. The other one has a chain link fence in the back, I think. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is also very LA. Like it. (laughs) Which is very city sports, right? Yeah. Um, And I also think it's, you know, yeah, you just, when you when you want to talk about authenticity in art, you you hit a wall somewhere. Like the article that I found on like hyper hyper allergic or something like that, it referred to um, the Instagram affa- uh, account Diet Prada as like sort of outing Rabbit Town. Yeah, which is really funny because Diet Prada is like a fuck Jerry style like amalgam amalgamation machine of other people's like findings right they advertise for bloomberg too (laughs) do they is was that i don't know i don't know but i think fuck jerry (laughs) don't quote me on that you have to fact check that before we publish this (laughs) i i refuse i'm this is trump is still president i'm not fact checking shit okay yeah um yeah yeah it's just funny they're like you know this piece of authenticity or lack of authenticity was outed by fuck jerry at (laughs) twitter.com or whatever it's like Okay, no, it wasn't, you know. Just email me, fuckjerry at twitter.com. <laughs> yeah, use my personal account, please. Anyone who needs to get a, a hold of the podcast, I, I recommend you go to Diet Prada, you DM them. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, each of these articles that I did find were very interestingly, like, just poorly written. <laughs> yeah. I mean, imagine, oh, wait, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to point out that, like, in another one, there was an, uh, that same critic that I was referring to earlier, the Indonesian critic, he was like, he was like, well, museums, you know, art objects are something for you to gain knowledge. It isn't for X, Y, and Z. It isn't to take a photo next to. And it's like, well, when you assign, like, an instrumental value to anything, any sort of art object, you're really, like, robbing it of something free. And that's why I hate, like, didactic political art so much you know I hate being told how to react to something yeah Um, I mean it's just like you can take a selfie in front of this thing here but not there yeah exactly and it's like what difference does it make then you go inside and you what difference does it make if it's just a background like how different is selfie tourism from just customizing your zoom background totally and I mean I mean selfie tourism is a concept you know, deserves a little bit of elaboration. You know, I was thinking of like the classic like Sontag on photography where she's talking about um, 
that is like, you know, how you measure your vacation. And this was written like whatever the 1970s, like take a picture. It hasn't changed that much. Like our relationship to popular imagery has not changed that much since the proliferation of low cost cameras and 30 millimeter film, which, which the proliferation of, of pre-world film did predate the proliferation of like point and shoot cameras. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a way of, it's a way of quantifying and justifying the expense of tourism, which is a product of like the proliferation of the middle class. And so in a lot of ways, I think, you know, selfie tourism is not class confinement. It's a class like reassurance. Class reassurance. Yeah, it's, it's related to that sort of perpetual feedback loop. That, that pat on the back that you give yourself. I actually have the quote here. Let me read it really quickly from yeah, Susan please. A way of certifying experience, taking photographs is also a way of refusing it. By limiting experience to a search for the photogenic, by converting experience into an image, a souvenir, travel becomes a strategy for accumulating photographs. The very activity of taking pictures is soothing and assuages general feelings of disorientation that are likely to be exacerbated by travel. Most tourists feel compelled to put the camera between themselves and whatever is remarkable that they encounter. Unsure of other responses, they take a picture. This gives shape to experience. Stop, take a photograph, and move on. This method especially appeals to people handicapped by a ruthless work ethic, Germans, Japanese, and Americans. <laughs> I like that little, that little bit at the end. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that reminds me of this interview between Wolfgang Tillman's in the spirituality issue of, um, of Aperture Magazine. Um, God, who was he interviewing? Everyone can tell that, like, how oh, studious yeah. you are in comparison. I've been out of college for two years, so I'm just, like, you know, drinking wine on the Zoom, like all young professionals. I Walter Ben, you mean right here, just in case I can keep it at my bedside and just, in, you know, you never know anything could happen. Yeah. I, I use, uh, I use pages for my art and theory anthology to, uh, wipe cum off my boyfriend. Yeah. That, that's really fun. Honestly, I was going to say like spackle, like a hole that somebody punched in the wall after a really cool party. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Martin Haglund. <laughs> <laughs> we should, if we're going to become internet intellectuals, we should probably learn German. Uh, mein Deutsch ist nicht besonders gut. <laughs> um, you know, they have this, they have this conversation around the function of the, of the photograph and the contemporary and, um, you know, Wilking Tillmans, who is someone who's like always really written the line between the vernacular and the fine art, talks about the image as a means of just doing something about the thing. And I've always really, um, uh, really admired that idea. I, it, well, I, not always, it only came out like in the last six months, but um, it has felt very obvious to me when I watch people take photographs of the sunset that when they're you know confronted with moments of ephemerality and the existential that the photograph is you know a very comforting remedy to that and so when you go out of your way to see something that is revered by media and you know your cultural periphery how else do you justify it and justify its importance to yourself other than by immortalizing it? Stop, take a picture, stop, take a picture. I mean, yeah, and, and really it has to do with our unhealthy relationship with mortality, right? I mean- Which yeah. is distinctly, it is, it is distinctly related to like those sorts of like those like nations that Sontag references, you know, people who spend their entire, it, it's like a very like sort of puritan, I mean, not Japan in the same sense, but it's a very like puritanical ideology that like everything you're doing now is like for a better future. And therefore there's not the same sort of like sense of, um, like sense of presence in like, you know, the purity of moment, which, 
photography refuses. Re photography refuses moments. It's the antithesis, like the output of photography is moment. Um, and so what's, what's interesting is that like, you know, something like Wasati Selfie or Swafoto as like an overarching medium is able to like earnestly acknowledge that as opposed to just like avoiding it. And I wonder, like, why we feel the need to avoid the fact that, yeah, it's, like, difficult to maintain, like, a sense of presence with any level of integrity. So photography satiates that anxiety, but we can't name it. Our culture does not allow us to name it, you know? But, like, they have no issue. They literally have a term for it. Well, they love it. And I mean, that brings me to something that I wanted to bring up, which is just, it's a Chinese concept, Shanzai. Uh, and Young Chul Han wrote a cool little book about it recently. But essentially, Shanzai is a term that derived from sort of like knockoff cell phones. And uh, then it evolves into all these different cultural forms of like knockoff Harry Potter books knockoff, you know, whatever, diet product, whatever it might be. But the, the, the core thesis is that, you know, and Indonesia isn't necessarily related to this, but I think it's more related than it's not. They're, they're not as tied up in notions of authenticity as we are, which seems very much tied to the photograph. Like, you know, to put the signature on the end of a painting is like to seal it in time forever. Whereas in Song era painting in China, uh, connoisseurs and, and, and owners and people that copied it would add their own stamps to it. It was a perpetually moving, malleable, alive iteration of something that also minimized the human, both in its like, you know, in its depictions of people, which are minuscule next to waterfalls or whatever, but also, you know, in, in that this singular artist is the only thing. In, in old school Chinese connoisseurship, they would lend paintings to students and the students would copy them, you know, they would paint their own version and then they would bring back the copy to the connoisseur. And if the connoisseur couldn't tell the difference, nobody cared. It was like, well, they got the one that was just as good. It's the same thing with like all those terracotta soldiers that uh, were made in China that were shipped to like the Tate or something like that. They found out that they were fakes. Wow. And uh, everyone got really up in arms and people in China were like, I don't understand the difference. <laughs> Do you have any idea how much it costs to ship these damn things? And then um, the East Shrine comes to mind as well, which is rebuilt every, you know, however many years, 15 years or something like that. They're like, no, this is the same one from, you know, however many centuries ago. It's not different. It's the same thing. What's that, um, that myth around the Trompleol fresco and... Are you talking about the uh, Zeuxis and Parasius? Parasius, yes, yes, yeah, where like so they had I, a... Can you tell I, that story? Do you yeah, know sure, it? I actually wrote uh, something for uh, David Elliott, who is working on some photography that has to do with this. He like goes to like the Eiffel Tower in Beijing and photographs like people engaging with that. I thought we should have him on our pod. I will, I will, yeah, he'll be the first to know. Um, but. Yeah, so the story of Zeuxis was basically that there was a competition held um, and it was to determine, oh my God, hold on, let me see if I can get this right. It was to determine who's the best painter. Who's the and best that, painter, yeah. And it was all about mimetic representation, mm -hmm. you know, and there wasn't really any, uh, the, the symbology wasn't as at the forefront. And well, so, it was, it was it was an era of humanism, so it was really not so much about like, um, you know, the conceit as much as it was about like, you know, just human aptitude. Yes. And so if I remember correctly, the story goes that the, the competitor against Zeuxis painted a painting of like a still life of grapes and fruit. And it was so realistic that the birds came down out of the sky and tried to pick the grapes off of the canvas. And everyone yes. was like, whoa. And Zeuxis is like, hey, man, I don't know if I can top that. Check this out. This is my painting. And it was, you know, some curtains were drawn. And um, so the competitor goes and he's like, all right, let's, let's figure out what's behind this. And he goes to peel back the curtain and discovers that that too is painted on. So the competitor was able to fool the birds in the sky. 
but Zeuxis was, was able, able to fool his competitor. Be able yeah. to fool the art world or whatever. Yeah. I love that story so much. I find I it know. Really There's I also know. a creepier story of Zeuxis. This all comes from Pliny, um, where big fan. Yeah, big. I love Pliny. Love the love the Pliny for president. Russian River. All gotta have Pliny it. Pliny twenty twenty. Yeah, exactly. Big fan. But um, it's fine. We can still run. We can still like. They're still counting the votes. You know, it's like <laughs> necessarily. Honestly, I wrote. I write it in every year. Pliny the Elder, running mate. Uh, I don't know. But uh, seventy-two AD. Completely unrelated. Uh, it was one where he brought in different models to compose like an idealized form of the female body, but he would have one woman come in and do like her legs and then another one come in and do like her midsection, another one do her breast. And uh, yeah, I'm still just waiting for like Griselda Pollock or somebody to, to jump on that because it hasn't happened yet. But, Hold on, I really have to pee. We're gonna have to pause for a sec. Cool, I can do it too. Okay, hear me. Okay, we're back. Uh, totally changing topics. Um, How's your quarantine vibe going? Now that we have to stay inside between the hours of 10 p.m. and 5 a.m., how do you think you'll uh, you'll manage? I mean, first of all, I'm gonna go outside when I damn please. Let's mm -hmm. get one thing real straight. Okay. I mean, you're a real artist, so you smoke cigarettes. So sometimes you got to. I will soon have a dog, and I will have to go outside to let my dog, like, you know, relieve himself. Yeah, I mean, that's really exciting. Congratulations. You're going to get Maynard. <laughs> Are you going to ever stop calling him that? It's no. Meat Yard, like the prolific American photographer. Or my favorite defunct Castro late night spot, the Meat Yard. Um, <laughs> Um, Haven't been there in years, but I'm sure it hasn't changed a bit. <laughs> um, yeah, I uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be mother to me or shortly. I got his sweater today in the mail. It's very uh, very cow necked and cable knit, just like his daddy. Cute. Who uh, sells cute. vintage books, so you know he needed a sweater. Yeah. As a, as a point of. Uh, uh, as a point of identification with uh, his his forefather. Yeah, you got to get like the uh, you know like the leather patches on the on the. Oh, the elbow, the elbow patches. Yeah, that's more geography, professor. I would say, but you're on a big geography thing today, and I'm not against it. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, we did learn earlier this week that the Danes have decided to kill. What was it? 17 million minks as far as i okay so yeah i i think that there is a species of mink that are specific to danish like um whatever. cultural production yeah <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, like farm whatever like farmed mink um yeah I, I have a quote here i could read to transition into this topic if we'd like it's a bit long but just just to give our listenership an idea of what we're talking about the danish government will slaughter millions of mink at more than 1,000 farms citing concerns that a mutation in the novel coronavirus that has infected the mink could possibly interfere with the effectiveness of a vaccine for humans there are more than 15 million or more mink in Denmark, which is one of the world's major exporters of mink furs. She said the armed forces would be involved in the culling of mink. This is thoroughly apocalyptic. And um, I feel like maybe not the right move. Controversial opinion, but that's just me. Um. There's a lot of angles here, but which do we take? I mean, there's this speciesist angle, which is like, maybe we should let minks take over the world. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe that's what we're missing. Unlikely. But um, I really liked what you mentioned earlier uh, about whether animals finding this like new and inventive way to kill us was a Darwinian pressure valve. A Darwinian pressure valve. Absolutely. It's... Which seems most likely. I mean, there's a totality to things, you know? I've read angles. Um, not really, I haven't. But 
I've heard people talking about angles and, um, you know, it's the same thing that he talked about with like the epidemics of the late 19th century in like urban areas, right? Like this is an unnatural course of events. So we're going to have these health problems that arise out of, you know, sanitation, proximity, you know, diphtheria, dysentery, things like that, TB, whatever. And um, I mean, let the minx be. Well, it's interesting because, you know, our proximity to non-human environments, which, I mean, humans as a, as an indisputably invasive species are, um, you know, don't have like an intrinsic natural habitat. We just impede on the habitats of others. And so as we continue and we continue to embark on the habitats of animals, we develop things like the coronavirus. Like most of the pandemics in the last 20 years have been zootropic. And so it's interesting that a zootropic illness then necessitates, like a zootropic illness causing an inadvertent mass death necessitates a subsequent genocide of another form of animal. It just seems a I think little- it's also incredibly like- Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's you. No, I was gonna say, I think it's ecologically naive to think that like, it's like whack-a-mole, right? Yeah. You're, gonna, you're gonna kill all the mink and then all the pangolins are gonna pop back up. And frankly, I love my bat soup, okay? Nobody's taking my bat soup away. You can pry it from a cool hand. I don't know. I mean, this is one of the more depressing stories I've heard recently. It it really That's really it. bummed me out, and I wanted to work it out with you because the minks have done nothing. They haven't even participated um, in the creation of the problem. They are the most inadvertent addendum to the complication of an ad hoc solution. You know. <laughs> Yes. And, you know, yeah, again, I just, my whack-a-mole theory, I just really don't think that, you know, a, a sort of mink genocide is the solution because something else will inevitably pop up. And I also just encourage anybody that's listening to this to just go on your phone, especially if you're driving and look up a photo or two of minks. And I wonder what that sort of like traumatic experience will be like for these Danish- The Danish armed, for, armed, armed forces. forces. Yeah. yeah, they're gonna have these like shaking 18 year olds in there with Gatling guns and all yeah. these minks like against the wall, like, you know, like the Goya- They're plate. gonna get, they're gonna shoot all these mink and then the Chris Burden estate's gonna sue them. The Chris Burden estate's gonna sue <laughs> they are desperate. The estate of Adolf Hitler has something to say about this. <laughs> the, of the Ottomans in, Ar in Armenia. Um, yeah, you know, I just, I really wish we could just leave the Manx be. It's not, it's not a particularly uh, erudite take. Yeah, let the, let the Manx be and, you know, pay your royalties. Your I mean, it, it, the like, Hitler estate. All of these COVID-related, like too little, too late solutions, only call to mind the profound lack of <laughs> cohesive leadership in our world. Like, I don't know. Like subsidizing people to make like outdoor like seating for bars. Like, like yesterday, I, I took this walk around the neighborhood. And it was, it was midday, it was right before it started raining. And, you know, I've been noting more and more homeless people utilizing those spaces before the bars open. And I don't even know where I'm going with this, but can we also start a petition to uh, decommission all of these like little hobby holes for people to go on like Tinder dates with and give them to the homeless and like cover them? Because we uh. are like, you want to talk about like priorities and sort of, you know, social triage, start there. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I have seen a few of those um, with with locking gates that they install after business hours 
and so homeless people, unhoused communities will not sleep there, which is interesting because I think about like the resounding rhetoric of COVID and, you know, I think about like the preambles of these uncertain times or now more than ever. <laughs> and it's, you know, speaking of pressure valves, COVID didn't come from nowhere. COVID was a product of accumulation. COVID was the pressure valve. And it's only just given us an opportunity to evaluate mass inequality in as many capacities as we could name and additional ad hoc solutions, you know, like killing 15 to 17 million mink or, you know, limited outdoor seating at the bar so people can get COVID more slowly than before, um, really just illuminate all like the blaring discrepancies of a pre-existing society. And then when you see them like put, you know, chicken wire around a parklet in Potrero, so someone who's out of luck and unable to access limited governmental resources or non-existent governmental resources can stave off the rain, it's not surprising to me that we find ourselves in the solution where we are. I mean, we find ourselves in, you know, in the position where we are. It's like this, like, fully, it's like, it's like a fully, like, resolute, you know, life cycle of contemporary civilization. It is. And, you know, you make a very good point that, you know, COVID is scarcely the issue. It is, you know, sort of inequality collapses in public health and in infrastructure. And it's obviously incredibly severe, but, you know, you look at something like the opiate epidemic, which has a sort of like class distinction to it that maybe COVID doesn't have because of its incredible, like, you know, transmission rate. It just raises a lot of questions about the way that our public health system works. And, you know, yeah. we all know this. And I will just add the minor addendum the COVID didn't come from nowhere. It was invented in a laboratory by Bill Gates. <laughs> read about it, do your own research, I highly recommend it. Thank you. Should You're we welcome. end on that? Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs>